So there's a great joke um, that is told in many countries in, in this part of the world. And uh, I'll tell you, because it, it sort of encapsulates the answer to your question. Mm. So there's a woman wakes up in the middle of the night. She's panicking and she's had a terrible nightmare. And she runs into the bathroom and opens the medicine cabinet and closes the door. And then she runs into the kitchen and opens the refrigerator and then closes the door. And then she runs out into the living room, opens the window, looks out onto the street closes the window, lets out a deep sigh and goes back to bed. And her husband goes, what was that about? And she says, I had this terrible nightmare. I dreamed that our medicine cabinet was filled with the medicines that we need, that our refrigerator was filled with food, and that the streets were absolutely clean and orderly. And he goes, how is that a nightmare? And she says, oh, I thought the communists were back in Thank you very much for tuning in. In this episode, I speak with Kristen Godsey. Kristen is professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of numerous books, including the 2018 book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. She's also the author of an upcoming book that will be released this year, Taking Stock of Shock, Social Consequences of the 1989 Revolutions, and that is co-authored with Mitchell Orenstein. Where I really wanted to start this thing was to discuss something that is mentioned in her bio, which is that in the early 90s, she was traveling Europe. This was a time when the Berlin Wall had collapsed or was beginning to collapse. They were starting to see these fissures emerging in East Germany and just the Soviet bloc in general. She witnessed that herself. She saw the changes that were unfolding in these societies across Europe. She then, from that experience, decided to then study this subject, the impacts that this collapse, this massive change uh, in these European, Eastern European societies was going to have, and it was having on those that lived under these regimes. Of course, we know the history of the Soviet Union. It collapsed in the early 90s. This led to really dramatic changes in the socioeconomic conditions. There was a really serious economic depression that occurred all throughout that period. This dramatically affected the lives of millions and millions of people in very profound ways, um, often very negative ways. Rapid privatization and commodification of certain aspects of life that previous to that were collectively owned or at least perceived to be collectively owned, even if, of course, it was centralized under a state. This had profound effects on the autonomy of women, for instance, their ability to choose who they wanted to be with as partners, how reliant they were on on men, for instance, to provide financial support and stability. So as Kristen had researched and had written about extensively in her numerous books and articles that she's published on the subject, we can see that what happened in Eastern Europe post-Soviet Union collapse was reflective of some of the issues, the ailments that we have under Western capitalism. We can see reflections of that here. And so this is really an important lesson for all of us who are curious about these things. 
even with the massive flaws that huge flaws that existed under state-managed socialism, if we even want to call it that, but centralized control of the economy and of other aspects of public life. How did this collapse of this infrastructure, this collapse of the system, impact those that grew up under that regime? I asked uh, Kristen to please explain some of the research that she's done, some of the observations that she had, not only from her firsthand experiences being there in Europe, the numerous trips that she made to Eastern Europe to interview and document these changes that were occurring in these societies, but also just the broader sociological data, analyzing the systemic changes that occurred during this transition up to the present, and how even today, especially today, decades after the fact, there's this nostalgia, this real longing by many people that lived under these regimes, but also those that were born even after these regimes had collapsed. There's this nostalgia to go back to the Soviet era kind of state-managed socialism. And I ask her why that is. There's something that we can really learn about this because while we can acknowledge that for those of us in the United States and those of us that live in what we call the West, the basic needs that we have as human beings for social connection, for intimacy, for basic material goods like food and shelter and so on, we all have that in common with every human being on the planet. Regardless of the cultural or societal differences, we have basic needs and desires that we would like to have met in our lives. And there were certain needs that were met under state-managed socialism during this time. Again, with its huge flaws, which are worth highlighting in a very, I think, nuanced and and, uh, balanced way, we can understand why there is this longing for this kind of Soviet-era socialism. And so I ask her where that longing, where that nostalgia comes from. And also, we then get to this point in which we talk about the anti-communist ideology Kristen had written a really excellent article for the website Aeon. The title of that is Anti-Anti-Communism. Millions of Russians and Eastern Europeans now believe that they were better off under communism. What does this signify? So she talks about this anti-communist ideology that is very, very prevalent, particularly in the United States and in other Western countries. Some of the arguments that they often make, some of the points that are regurgitated and said over and over and over again by those that are anti-communist and how those arguments not only are flawed, like where those arguments even come from, and also how we as people on the left, I mean, whether you're pro-state socialism or state communism or not, anti-communist ideology is corrosive, and its arguments are just dog shit. Uh, Honestly, they're terrible arguments, and we need to be able to, whatever, however you fit within the spectrum on the left, to be able to effectively argue against those when necessary. I mean, obviously, if you don't want to invest the energy or the time, uh, the effort into having these arguments, I think it's often just kind of a waste of time, to be quite honest with you. But for those that are actually genuinely interested and want to have an actual conversation about this, you know, there's a lot of things that can be said about having social welfare programs, about moving towards building a society in which we take care of each other more. And how, with again, all of the huge flaws that existed under Soviet bloc nations, and there are many, right? We can still acknowledge that certain things were attended to that are not being attended to under capitalist societies. And that's just an obvious thing that we can point out. So I asked Kristen to please examine that, to share her thoughts on that subject. 
And uh, yeah, everybody, that's pretty much it. I really enjoyed this discussion a great deal with Kristen. Uh, Just an enjoyable person to have a conversation with. And I really hope that comes across in listening to this interview with her. If you would like to learn more about uh, Professor Godsey's work, you can go to her website, kristengodsey.com. That is Kristen with a K. Godsey is spelled G-H-O-D-S-E-E dot com. Everything you need to know about her work can be found there. I will also be putting links to her book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, as well as a link to pre-order and learn more about her upcoming book, Taking Stock of Shock, as well. And also, I'll be putting a link to her excellent podcast, AK-47, down in the description of this episode. And if you would like to learn more about my work specifically, you can go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be on that website. If you would like to support my work monetarily, there are a couple options available to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal or Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Throw a few bucks my way through that, or you can go and find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. If you would like to support my work on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that at the Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness, and there you can contribute however much you feel like contributing, and you'll gain early access to these interviews before they're released publicly. And so that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for your attention, and here is my interview with Kristen Gotzi. Well, uh, Kristen, thank you for joining me for this. I've been eyeing your work for a while. I have like a list of people that I've like I need to get a hold of at some point and talk to them about their book or whatever it was that caught my attention. And uh, definitely, your book uh, "Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism" was one of those. Is a provocative title. It seems <laughs> yeah. like it gets straight to the point. Um, I didn't choose it. Good. So. <laughs> oh, okay. So it was one of those like editor type decisions. Of course. Yeah. 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 Um, you you find when you write for a more popular audience, you have far less control over things like titles and cover design than you otherwise might wish. Isn't that funny? Isn't that weird? I don't know. I guess that kind of makes sense in a certain kind of way. But well, it's a marketing decision. I think ultimately right. they decide and they know the market. I mean, it's not like I spend all of my days, you know, staring at other books in bookstores and figuring out which ones sell really well. And apparently marketing people do that. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's like their whole field, right? That's all they're yeah. all they're focused on. Yeah. Well, um, again, I, I'm really happy we could talk today. Um, Thanks so thank for you inviting for- me. Yeah, thanks for feeling, you know, willing to do it. I know you, uh, you're teaching, you're a professor. Uh, we were discussing before we started just how much professors and and students and teachers, I mean, whatever level they're teaching at or or going to school at, I mean, it's it's a difficult time to be doing this all around. So the fact that you could just carve out a little time for me just to talk about your book and your work in general, I, I really appreciate it. So thank yeah, you. And, and on your birthday, no less. That's pretty On exciting. my birthday. Yeah. The big <laughs> three, two. Here I am. It's so funny. I just want to say like, I, I was working out yesterday and I hurt my back a little bit and I'm like, how appropriate getting into my thirties. <laughs> and I'm like, I need to know how to take care of my body a little better and know my limits. Um, seems appropriate, but, um, anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you again. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I really wanted to just have a, uh, I mean, a, a good, you know, interview, but also just a discussion with you because 
I, I I always get a little frustrated, especially in our political climate right now in the United States. And I'm sure this has been this way for a long time. But just having any conversation about you know, how do we take care of people? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we address really basic needs of people? Whether we're talking about healthcare, access to things like food, clean water, shelter, really basic stuff. And for some reason, and there's a lot of reasons for it, just to even have that basic discussion of how that can be addressed is, I don't know, it's, it's it, it, you really have to be very careful about who you talk to about it in a very frank way. Like, because before you know it, socialism, communism gets thrown around. You're a Marxist, you're Antifa. I mean, it's just this extremely toxic and poisonous environment. And I still want to have these discussions because I care. You know, I care about people and and how to address the needs of of everyone. Um, So, you know, when we talk about also interpersonal relationships between, you know, whether we're talking about men or women or those that do not fit within that binary, uh, material conditions that uh, you know, other economic, socioeconomic paradigms have addressed are, are really relevant. Um, and that's where your book comes in. You know, we're talking about sex, which is one of the most intimate things that two or more people can engage in. Um, and how addressing the material conditions, the material needs of people has such a profound effect on their ability to have autonomy over their bodies, over their lives, over their relationships, everything. And of course, economics and um, all of this comes into play. So, you know, I I know I'm kind of starting off really fast with that, but I I really wanted to start more of like, you know, we know about what happened in the late 80s, early 90s, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, these uh, very um, profound shifts that happened in, in these societies across Europe, Eastern Europe and into Asia as well. Um, and you were in, and I'm reading your bio. I was looking at how you were in Europe and it says 1989, 1990. Yeah. And you were there and probably witnessing and in, in the midst of this massive seismic shift. So I just wanted to ask about that. I mean, I know that was probably extremely informative in the path that you took with your work. Um, I mean, what was that like for you? What were, what were your experiences at that time and, and how did that, kind of kick off your curiosity into this subject? Yeah. So that's a really great question to start with, because I think it actually has a, it, it provides a really interesting mirror and reflection on something that I think a lot about with the contemporary political moment that we're in around climate change and um, the kind of extreme inequality and the pandemic and a lot of the hopelessness and despair I see among some of my students uh, and as well as like I have a 19 year old daughter so I talk to her and her peers a lot about these kinds of questions and I think so when I was um, growing up in the 80s I was in high school in the 80s it was the Reagan era and this was like a time of pretty awful reignition of the Cold War and you know we I grew up from the age, I think, of like 10 until I was 19, there was like a good solid decade of my youth where I just assumed, as most kids did, that we were all going to die in a complete nuclear war. Um, There were so many bombs. And, you know, people in the United States were talking about tactical first strikes. And, 
But we knew that mutually assured destruction was the outcome. Nuclear winter was, you know, there was a, there was a really famous moment where, you know, Carl Sagan described the East-West confrontation around nuclear weapons as like, there are two men standing knee deep in gasoline. I'm paraphrasing here. And one guy has two mashes and the other guy has three. <laughs> right? Oh, man. This is the situation that we were in. So I actually graduated from high school I went off to UC Santa Cruz for my first year of university. And I just sort of decided that like the world was going to end. This was 88, 89. Um, and I didn't want to be stuck, like taking some stupid exam <laughs> for <laughs> sure. a world that was about to die. And I'd never seen any of that world. And so I dropped out of college. I dropped mm-hmm. out of college and I uh, worked all summer, saved up some money and bought a one-way ticket. This is how serious I was that the mm-hmm. world was going to end. I bought a one-way ticket. Um, and I went to uh, to Europe and I was trying to find work uh, picking oranges in um, Valencia in Spain. And there was a strike and it was you know complicated. And I ended up going to Barcelona and somebody tipped me off that I could get work as a nanny if I, if I could get a bus. There was bus. There was a bus back then, a coach, long distance coach to England. And I was and this was really, it was a really horrible time because it was right around the time of the Loma Prieta earthquake as well in California, which sort of devastated downtown Santa Cruz. A lot of my friends were still back there. And anyway, I just, you know, as far as I was concerned, the world was about to end. And, mm-hmm. um, and so the earthquake was just like another symptom of that. And, you know, eventually these nukes were just going to start flying. And then I was in a bus station and I had literally just bought my ticket from Barcelona to London on this long distance coach. It was going to take me like three days. I can't even remember. And there was a little television set in the corner of this bus station. And, you know, there were people jumping up and down on the Berlin Wall. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, I, I was 19. I could not believe my eyes. And, you know, in the corner of the television, it said like, en vivo, live. And everybody, you know, there was this buzz that kind of, you know, went through the, went through the, um, trained the, the bus station and people were so shocked. It was like, what the heck is going on for us? The idea that the Berlin wall would fall, the idea that the cold war could just like end without a war was inconceivable. Right. Right. So, um, you know, it was at the, at that moment, if I had had the money, I didn't, I would have gone directly to Berlin, but I didn't have the cash. So I went to England. And uh, I worked until I had enough money. And eventually I ended up traveling uh, from uh, overland. I came from Istanbul. I was in Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Romania, um, Hungary, what was then Czechoslovakia, what was then Eastern Germany. Mm. Um, And I spent the first summer after the fall of the Berlin Wall in Eastern Europe, which was just this amazing time of hope, of uh, just sort of like unbridled, celebration about the possibility of things like world peace Mm. and uh, international cooperation, collaboration uh, across this thing that was the, you know, the old iron curtain. So there I was, you know, this sort of 19 year old, I turned 20 by the time I'd gotten there. Um, And I like my whole worldview, like this, this whole future that I had imagined wouldn't exist for me. Suddenly it was like, Oh God, maybe I should go back to college. (laughs) (laughs) oh boy did i screw up on this one you know luckily they took me back um but but i think that what was so remarkable about having been there at that time was just the possibility that the world would be a more peaceful um 
and sustainable and equitable place after, you know, coming to the brink of this total nuclear annihilation. And, you know, we didn't, the, the thing about climate change at that particular moment wasn't as much in the forefront of our consciousness as nuclear destruction. Um, but mm-hmm. it was a similar kind of narrative of like hopelessness of the future of our future being foreclosed and taken away from us. And so when I had the opportunity um, and eventually, you know, go, went back to grad school at UC Berkeley, I knew for sure that I wanted to study what happened. So there was all this promise and excitement and hope in 1990 and by the time I end up back in Bulgaria in 97, 98, it's just so bleak and so awful. And of course, you know, we um, had the first Gulf War and the all of the, the what was then called the peace dividend. There was this idea that all the money that we had spent in the Cold War would be reinvested in people and education and health and all these good things. And no, that's not what happened. We got uh-huh. like the dot com you know, boom instead. And we got like mobile phones and wireless internet. It was like a totally different world. Uh, Um, so, so it, it, it was a, it was a really transformative experience to have as a young person. I was really fortunate that I happened to be there at that time. And it allowed me to get a window onto what it's like for a group, a generation or two or three generations of people more in the Soviet union to grow up under a system that they thought would last forever. And and what happens when everything that you think of as permanent suddenly just disappears overnight. Hmm. Does that parallel of thinking like this system or this, this paradigm we're under currently, because we exist in a sort of neoliberal economic capitalist system and the sort of state socialism that you, um, that you had researched. I mean, is there, do you get a sense? Is there a parallel there? Because, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there's of course that, uh, was it Fukuyama? This is the end of history. history. (laughs) Of course, that's not true. Of course. Um, but the sense that like, this is, this is it. Like, this is what we've got. This is the best we could possibly do. We cannot possibly imagine anything beyond this. Do you get a similar sense of what maybe people were experiencing at that time in that place as what we're experiencing here in the West? Absolutely. Like, I think that, so, you know, there was this idea, there is no alternative. You know, people were saying that uh, Mark Fisher's great work on capitalist realism, Mm -hmm. um, this idea that capitalism, and I think there's this famous quote of Frederick Jameson that Zizek likes to, to repeat, which is, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is for us to imagine the end of capitalism. You know, we, um, I have a colleague at Berkeley, his name is Alexei Yurchuk, and he wrote a really interesting book about the last Soviet generation. And the title of this book is Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More. (laughs) So I think that that kind of, um, it's a very common problem that people think that the political and economic system which they're in, which pervades, you know, every aspect of our lives can't change. And I hear this often among young people who say like, what can I do about it? Like, you know, it's just things are the way they are. I can't do anything to change it. The system is like that. Like I'm just a pawn in this big, you know, huge, a cog in this wheel. And the thing is that that's, you know, we know from history that empires just fall. They just like Boop, they just disappear, right? Yeah. We're on the brink of nuclear annihilation, and then the Soviet Union just like ends. 
um, the Berlin Wall just falls. You know, and, and there are plenty of historical precedents for this in history. And so there is this really interesting tension between wanting to have conversations about how do you imagine the world changing with people who don't necessarily have um, any sort of frame of reference for how the world can suddenly suddenly change. Now, I think that that's changed in the last year because of the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember the last class that I taught at Penn before the lockdown, and it was a class on population and public health. And so we had been studying um, communicable diseases and, you know, I had heard about this thing called the coronavirus, which was at that time in Iran and Italy and it come from China and people were talking about it. And I remember asking my students, hey, you guys want to talk about the coronavirus? Like <laughs> what a pandemic would be like, you know, and none of them were interested. This was like the week before spring break. They all had <laughs> plans. And so, and like, you know, and then suddenly, wow, the world just like seized yeah. up and changed. And I think so we're in a very plastic moment. Um, the fact that people see change happening, I think, is has opened their eyes to the fact that change is always possible. And often it comes sort of when you least expect it. And yeah. so people in Eastern Europe, my sense of their understanding of, you know, the Great Recession um, and now the pandemic is that. They've seen it all before. They're much more flexible and pliable in terms of understanding that the world can sort of turn on a dime than people who were raised in the United States in this sort of late capitalist hegemony that teaches us that this is the only system, this is the only way of organizing our polity and our economy. And I just don't think that's true. And we have so much historical evidence to show that that it's not true. Yeah, it's one thing to understand it on a maybe academic or historical or intellectual level. It's like this abstracted idea and then to have the lived experience of it is a very different thing. Like it's the same thing with we're talking about climate change. I mean, we can understand the data. We know what's coming and we know how it's happening. We have all the information we've ever needed. And yet it still feels like this far off thing. And then like what happened in Texas, which yeah. was a combination of different things, but most definitely that cold snap is is a result. Uh, most likely I would say uh, it's correlated with climate disruption. So until it like visits you, often you can't imagine something different. And so, um, yeah, and I just want to ask about, I mean, um, what was, I, I think there's, a, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a, um, I think this is the United States in particular. I feel like we're a little ahistorical. We often don't understand the perspectives of other peoples from other regions as much. Unfortunately, we're pretty myopic in that way. Um, but, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War was over, and of course there's a wave of optimism because it's like finally this 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 cloud over our head has dissipated a bit. That's amazing. But then of course, what comes after that? What comes after that? Because that, that the the realism, the the sense of like, okay, now what comes next? There is a sense of possibility, but there's also the fact that the United States is the most powerful. Uh, entity in the world. And of course, it's going to have its say in the direction these former Soviet bloc nations, uh, the directions that they were going to go in. So like what immediately started happening uh, after this collapse uh, of the Soviet Union? Yeah. So I, um, I've i just uh, finished a book with a colleague of mine who's a political scientist at Penn named Mitchell Orenstein. And um, it's coming out in July with Oxford University Press. It's called taking stock of shock, 
social consequences of the 1989 revolutions. And what we do in that book is look at um, economic, demographic, public opinion, and ethnographic data, and really talk about how difficult the transition was for many people, the majority of people, and how that transition also benefited, you know, a very lucky few. And so I think the thing that I would just say, and I mean, this, I literally could talk about this forever. I teach classes <laughs> on this, right? Sure, sure. Is that the countries of Eastern Europe after 1989 in, um, you know, the, the, the former uh, Warsaw Pact states of like Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, and so on. And then after 1991 in the successor states of the Soviet Union, they all went through a depression in the 90s that was longer and deeper than the Great Depression in the United States in the 30s. Mm. We have the data to show that. Now, some countries like Poland and Hungary uh, recovered much more quickly, but a lot of countries still in 2021 do not have the standard of living that they had under communism in 1991, 30 years later. Wow. So this was not... Um, a transition that was reasonably managed in any way. Um, we imposed a kind of uh, wild, wild East capitalist neoliberalism on these countries, and they were desperately uh, unprepared for that. Um, we came bearing the the, the, the the language and narrative of democracy, but when electorates rejected economic reform, we swept in and, you know, manipulated them and, you know, did everything possible to keep the people who were pro-Western reformers in power. We have a pretty bad track record when it comes to the way we treated Eastern Europe. Some people... Uh, I'm actually among those think that we should have treated Eastern Europe the same way we treated Germany and Japan after the Second World War. There should have been much more aid, um, sort of a Marshall Plan kind of idea of like helping these countries. But no, what did we do? We ransacked them. Um, they they went through brutal waves of privatization, which caused massive spikes in mortality. Um, fertility is declining. You know, some of the fastest, I think, of the top 20 fastest shrinking countries in the world, I think 16 of them are in Eastern Europe. So it was a catastrophe uh, of massive proportions from a social perspective. Now, if you were an oligarch, if you happened to be in the right place at the right time, if you had, you know, buddies with thick necks and um, <laughs> lots of <laughs> weapons or whatever, like things worked out pretty well for you. Um, but we see, I think, one of the things about my research that because it's been, I've been doing this research for almost 25 years now, is that, you know, the impact on everyday life, on ordinary people's lives has been quite deleterious compared to how it could have been or how it was in countries that maintained much wider social safety nets and made the transition from what I call state socialism to neoliberal capitalism much more gradually. And so there is a lot of anger at the West in this part of the world. And, you know, again, not undeservedly. They're pretty upset about what happened, particularly after the great, um, they were just sort of beginning to grow when the financial crisis hit in 2007, 2008, 2009. And um, it's been, it's been a rough couple of, uh, couple of decades in this part of the world. Yeah. Is there a sense of, um, I, I think you've written about this for sure. Um, and I've heard this in other places, a kind of nostalgia for the Soviet era 
And is that nostalgia founded in, I mean, cause nostalgia kind of has this quality of not being based in what was actually happening or what it was actually like. It's just a, a longing for something different or some idea of the past. But I imagine, and as you've pointed to with your research, that there was like actual things that they probably deeply do miss <laughs> a certain stability or a certain type of uh, uh, quality of life that uh, just could not exist currently. Um, yeah. So what is it, I guess the general sense that people have now um, from your research as far as, far as like what their attitude was about that time mm-hmm. um, in Soviet era? Yeah. So there's a great joke um, that is told in many countries in, in this part of the world. And uh, I'll tell you, because it, it sort of encapsulates the answer to your question. Mm-hmm. So there's a woman wakes up in the middle of the night, she's panicking and she's had a terrible nightmare and she runs into the bathroom and opens the medicine cabinet and closes the door. And then she runs into the kitchen and opens the refrigerator and then closes the door. And then she runs out into the living room, opens the window, looks out onto the street, closes the window, <laughs> lets out a deep sigh and goes back to bed. And her husband goes, what was that about? And she says, I had this terrible nightmare. I dreamed that our medicine cabinet was filled with the medicines that we need, that our refrigerator was filled with food, and that the streets were absolutely clean and orderly. And he goes, how is that a nightmare? And she says, oh, I thought the communists were back in power. (laughs) So, you know, it's meant to be a kind of ironic joke, obviously. And there are really bad things about a lot of these communist countries as they existed in the 20th century. I don't want to sugarcoat that, right? There were travel restrictions and consumer shortages. There was the secret police. You know, if we go back to the 30s and we look at the Stalinist era, you have the purges and the famines and the gulags. And these are, you know, I don't want to deny that those things are real. But there are a lot of things that we don't hear about as Americans, like ordinary things about people's lives that made their lives much more stable and by far less commodified than our contemporary lives today. And so when people are nostalgic for the past, you know, some of some of the nostalgia, you know, comes very concretely from what are often called the losers of the transition. So people whose socioeconomic status has really declined since 1989 or 91. And they're genuinely nostalgic for a better standard of living that they had in the past. These generally tend to be older people, not surprisingly. But where I think the sort of youth, and there is a youth nostalgia. So even people who were born in the 80s or born after the collapse of state socialism in Eastern Europe are nostalgic for that past, nostalgic Mm -hmm. for that past, which is odd, right? Because they didn't really live it. But There's a very pervasive sense, uh, and my colleague Maria Todorova in Bulgaria has written about this extensively, that there was a kind of unique sociality to growing up in a non-market or relatively non-market economy where everybody had a job guarantee. You had basic food, basic needs taken care of. You had usually a house. You were often crowded into a house, but you had a roof over your head. You had food. You didn't have very much choice but you had basic caloric intake covered. Yeah. You had clothes. They were pretty ugly, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but they kept you warm, right? right. Um, I think like uh, Kate Sorper's book, Alternative Hedonism here is a really interesting frame with which to look at some of these realities of, of state socialism in Eastern Europe. You had public transportation, not private cars. You had good education, 
Um, but not everybody could go to university and get the degrees that they wanted because there was like central planning around different professions. So there were like things that allowed you to maintain a certain standard of living. There was a floor under which you could not fall. And then there were pretty high, uh, you know, pretty strict limits above which you could not rise. Right. So inequality Mm -hmm. in these societies was very low. There were differences, but there was, but it was very minor compared to what came afterwards, right? Right. Um, and you know, there are just some absolute, unequivocal facts of the matter, right? When when Russia in 1910, the average life expectancy of a Russian was 33 years old. At the same year in France, of course, this is before First World War, it was 49. That's a 16 year gap in life expectancy between Russia and France. Wow. By the time you get to 1970, the average life expectancy in France is 71. And in Russia, it's in the Soviet Union, the communist Soviet Union, it's 68. So the gap has been reduced to only three years. And that's despite all of the problems of the Soviet economy, Mm -hmm. right? So when we look at things like life expectancy, when we look at things like population health, when we look at things like women's rights, right? We can actually see, and again, I'm not, these aren't, these aren't just figures I'm making up. Anybody can go online and find this data. It's available for anybody to see. You have to recognize that there were some things that these countries did right. Not everything. And I don't think we should bring them back because they had lots of problems associated with them. But as part of the political and ideological toolkit that we need to have in order to face the many challenges of the 21st century. These are problems like climate change and the pandemic and inequality and automation that the market cannot solve. Rather than reinventing the wheel, which is what the left always seems to want to do, (laughs) we should go back, I think, and learn from the experience of the past. And what better place to to learn from than these countries, which actually presented a real alternative to the capitalism, you know, the capitalist model of development that we have today in the 20th century. I just think it's really important to go back and look at the things that they might have done right. And yes, when you talk about housing as a human right, or you talk about healthcare, or you talk about um, you know the Green New Deal or jobs guarantees or all of these very practical policies that we could put into place to make people's lives more manageable and ultimately more free, right? Um, people are going to call you a socialist. They're going to call you a communist. They're going to try to shut you down because there are those are ideas that were often implemented in this part of the world. There's some history history there, mm-hmm. historical um, truth to the fact that yeah, job guarantees you know had their ups and downs in the way that they were implemented in Eastern Europe under central planning. That doesn't mean we can't rethink those things, but it does mean we have to rather than run away from the state socialist past. We should try to like interrogate that past in a more nuanced and thoughtful way rather than just sort of, you know, relegating it all to the dustbin of some sort of Stalinist totalitarian nightmare, which is Mm -hmm. how it often gets described in contemporary American political discourse. Yes. And I really want to, I want to hone in on the anti-communist ideology. But I do want to ask before we get to that, 
just to talk a bit about again, like what life was like under these socialist states. Um, you know, we're talking about basic human needs, uh, shelter, access to healthcare, food, water, all of these things. And this is all, uh, you know, these are basic material needs, but, you know, interpersonal relationships, how this impacts our ability to have meaningful uh, relationships with one another, whether that's through friendships, family, uh, lovers, so on. Um, it seems like that all has a huge impact. I mean, all of us know what it's like to be, to, to grow up in maybe a household that you were strapped for cash or, you know, the parents were working, each working 40 plus hours a week. I mean, like capitalism imposes a certain thing on us and we're all raised under those conditions and it, it informs almost every aspect of our lives there, thereafter. So it's like, of course, this has a huge impact on our development, our personalities, um, our traumas and so on. So I'm curious about how living under a, a, a maybe a state socialist system um, would affect, um, say, like women's autonomy, their ability to choose who they want to be with, um, or men, uh, or those that do not fit in that binary. Um, you know how their their ability to just operate mm -hmm. within their relationships. I mean, what were some of the uh, trends that you observed in your work and also just by speaking to people. I know that again, that probably a bit, a lot of that nostalgia harkens back to that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The sociality thing. I mean, and I find this in the weirdest places. So even like um, a country like Romania, which had a really terrible dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu was really oppressive. And yet people are also really nostalgic for the era because of the way people treated each other differently. And I also think just, you know, to make a note here, we can also see some of this at, you know, operating in like the more Scandinavian sort of mm -hmm. socialist countries. It's not just the East, but essentially what happens, I mean, as you pointed out, a lot of us are working really hard. A lot of us are hustling. Um, young kids, young people today feel like they have to constantly be branding themselves, investing in their human capital um, they themselves have become sort of neoliberal products, right? Um, Malcolm Harris has a great book called Kids These Days, where he talks about the making of millennials. Wendy Brown, a political theorist, wrote this wonderful book called Undoing the Demos, which is how neoliberalism has infected the polity. But the key thing that I think we struggle with in late capitalism in the United States is the commodification of the self, the commodification of our emotions, our affections, our attentions, like our even our individualism, right? It, everything is being mediated by an app on a phone or mm -hmm. by, by some screen or some corporation that's trying to find a way to monetize things that we need, like basic human emotions that we want to express um, or have expressed to us. And that's the power of capital, right? And you go back to the Communist Manifesto and you can read about how capital just sort of sinks into every aspect of our lives to find ways to extract profit from us. And I think what happens is when you have a society with wider social safety nets, and again, this is for both men and women and people who don't fit into that binary, Anybody who lives in a society who knows that they're going to have health care if they need it, that they're going to have food to eat and a roof over their head and heat in the winter, which is really important in this part of the world and very important in Texas, apparently, these days. Yeah, yeah apparently. You, are, you have far fewer incentives 
to commodify every interaction that you have with another human being. One of the things that people in this part of the world who grew up under both systems, so I was 19 when the the Berlin Wall fell, and most of my colleagues and peers were the same age. So they lived like the first 20 years of their lives under communism and then 30 years under capitalism. Some of my um, colleagues who are older have like 30 years under the socialist system. And then they were 30, like your age when it changed, right? Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly they're thrown into capitalism when, it, you know, in their, in their mid thirties and now they're in their mid sixties, they're getting close to retirement age. And one of the things they all say, what they all miss is this idea that human relationships existed independent of the market. Right. Mm -hmm. You went to the store to buy things like food and clothes and cigarettes and booze or whatever. Right. But you never treated your relationships necessarily like a commodity. You never sold your attentions. You never sold your affections. You never even felt like compelled to transactionalize your human contact with another person, whether that's a lover or a friend or a family member or a colleague or a comrade, right? And what what the introduction of capitalism has done is to make everybody feel like a commodity Hmm. and to make our time, you know, obviously capitalism extracts labor power from us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Through uh, the extraction of surplus labor from our, our work, But what's happened, I think, with late capitalism is increasingly it's extracting value from our attention and our emotions. And that is really something that I think deteriorates the quality of human relationships for everyone. And people who have experience of one system or the other, you know, who've straddled this divide, they can really pinpoint what it is about late capitalism that is so dehumanizing. I mean, obviously, Marxists have been talking about alienation for a long time, but it's usually alienation from one's labor, not alienation from oneself, right? Mm. And one's and one's loved ones. And so I think, you know, this really shows up in the way that we talk about relationships in the West. We say that we invest in a relationship or we invest in a friendship. Mm. Like yeah. what kind of concept is that, right? We're we're assuming that this other human being, you know, we're sort of buying shares in them, so to speak, that will pay off at some future date. What a weird way to interact with our fellow human beings, you know, or or um, we spend time rather than sharing time <laughs> with people. Mm-hmm. We have all sorts of interesting, you know, we do the work around a relationship or when we um, end up you know, leave one relationship and we uh, decide to go out and look for another partner, we talk about being back on the market. <laughs> right? Oh my God. But even the way that we talk about relationships in, in our late capitalist society, it's so commodified. And yeah. I know it's hard to come up with other terms and words when these are so pervasive and popular, but I think we should really think, you know, profoundly about why it is that we live in a society where everybody is constantly hustling and the hustle, this fear of falling, this fear of not being able to keep up and catch up is, is poisoning um, not just our environment, which is extremely important, but also our relationships, which I think for a lot of people, you know, are, are, are the kind of front line of our emotions are these people in our lives who are around us. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So would you say that the maybe the hearkening back or the nostalgia that people may feel in these post-socialist or post-communist or post-Soviet uh, nations, you think that that's a really a, at the forefront of their nostalgia or their longing for the past is just a sense of like, uh, man, my relationships were better or I felt better about myself or I didn't feel like everything was commodified. I mean, like, is that something that comes up in like actual data or polling or or surveys or something like that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, um, we look at we look at data on public trust whether or not you trust people in your society. There are really good polls on that. We look at demo uh, demography. Are people getting married? Are people having kids, right? Mm. Do people have any hope in the future? Or are they so exhausted um, and stressed about trying to make ends meet that they, they're just constantly delaying, you know, what we think of as sort of more traditional family formations. Mm. Um, but we also think about like how much time do you have to share with your friends? Like, do you, like how, how many non-market, non-transactionalized interactions do you have with other people in your day? You know, there are ways of asking these kinds of questions. And, um, you know, and then as you know, from the book, right, there's also a, a whole narrative about intimate relations being more satisfying, right? Because people have economic independence. People are not necessarily dependent on one another. Like for instance, in the United States, I think the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 25%, one out of four women under the age of 64 gets their health insurance through an employed spouse, which means that if you're in an abusive or unhappy or otherwise unsatisfying relationship, you cannot leave that relationship without losing access to medical care. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, a country like Canada, you know, the socialist country of Canada, which has a, a healthcare system, which is a right of citizenship, right? So yeah. in a country like the United States, where we lionize freedom and liberty, we actually create the conditions for many people in our country that make them a far less free, less free to leave a job that they don't like, less free to leave a relationship that's perhaps abusive than people who live in more socialist countries or countries with larger social safety nets. And so, yeah, the, uh, you know, on a number of sort of empirical factors, we can actually look and see how, you know, how these differences get operationalized. In this book that I mentioned, Taking Stock of Shock, one of the things that I do is a big survey of the ethnographic research over the last 30 years. And I'm specifically interested in the persistence and pervasiveness of this nostalgia. One of the things I do want to say is that I don't think it's all about the sociality. I think some of it is just about the material conditions of people's lives, like having sure. heat having sure. medicine, you know, when you have to choose between heating and eating, it's not going to be an ideal world for you when mm -hmm. in fact you have a memory of the past when you didn't have to make those choices. So I think the material conditions here are really important, but even for people who we would call the winners of transition. So people who actually had more opportunities after 1989, younger people, people in urban areas, people who spoke foreign languages and had higher levels of education, they largely did very well um, relative to their compatriots. But even those people often look back fondly on the kind of sociality, the time that you had 
for your friends and your colleagues, your lovers and your family members that just doesn't exist anymore. Now, some of that is probably just due to like the speed up of capitalism, right? That's Mm -hmm. just sort of the nature of the system. And so even in the United States 30 years ago, things were probably a lot less harried and hustly than they are today. Mm -hmm. We didn't Mm -hmm. have phones. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have all these things going on. So life was just sort of simpler. So you have to be careful to also bracket that out as well. Like nostalgia is always about a simpler time when you're young and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So I don't want to just like paint one hegemonic narrative about why this nostalgia is there. But as a social scientist, as somebody who's really interested in the change and who have spent the last 25 years or so studying this transition from socialism to capitalism, you know, we look for something called a natural experiment. And and so we can look at a group of people who are raised under one system and see how their lives changed when that system disappeared. And it turns out that, again, you know, without sugarcoating it and saying that everything was just fine behind the Iron Curtain, um, there were some good things and there were some real losses. And I think that, look, in the United States today, as well as in Britain and in many other industrialized countries, we have an epidemic of loneliness. We have an epidemic of isolation. So it's not just climate change. It's not just Um, automation or the pandemic or extreme levels of inequality or systemic racism or sexism that we're dealing with, all of which are huge problems, which the market cannot solve. But but isolation is another one that, you know, capitalism has a way of making us feel more and more isolated. The market is actually pushing us into smaller and smaller little, you know, um, nodes of individualism and and many people in this country are suffering men and women and and people who don't associate with either of those categories everyone is suffering I think and so especially young people mm-hmm. and so like we have to stop we have to take stock of what we have done and again I think it because of capitalist realism, because of the feeling that this 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 pervasive argument that there is no alternative, right? It it becomes very difficult for us to imagine alternative pathways into the future, and that's where I feel like both the theory and the practice of um, socialists, and not just what we call scientific socialists, but also utopian socialists, also anarchists you know, also various kinds of futurists, utopians of all sorts of different stripes. I think that there's an incredible history of ideas that challenge the basic presumption that profit should be more important than people. And so we as citizens of the world, right, inhabitants of this planet, we kind of have, I feel like, a responsibility to go back and start reading and thinking about all of these different solutions that have been proposed, some of which were tried, some of which were never tried, some which failed miserably, some which didn't do too bad, right? Go back and really look at these different sorts of ideologies and theories and and imaginings. You know, there are so many wonderful you know, yeah. you find this in utopian literature and even in science fiction, there's so much richness back there. And what happens, unfortunately, in the United States in particular, is that any kind of gesture to want to reassess those sort of past experiments ends up getting reduced to the worst 
yes. of Stalinism. And, and then the, the yes. conversation just gets foreclosed, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah, I just wanted to point to this because even currently there are examples of, like you mentioned, Canada. And um, of course, there's, um, you know, Scandinavian nations that show like what social democracy looks like. And, um, and, you know, they, they brag that they're like, they're really efficient capitalist systems, too. They're not even owning the socialist label. They're just like, we just have good social welfare. Um, and that's it. And then I remember it was, I think it was when Bernie Sanders was running this last year or so. Of course, what happens is they try to dig up whatever they can to slander him or do whatever. And I think he had said something at one point, just talking about the, I think it was just the Cuban healthcare system. And he's like, look, like they have some, I don't know exactly what he said, but yeah. my remembrance and what I know about Cuba is that they have the best doctors in the world. They have one of the best healthcare systems in the world. And that is a fact. Mm-hmm. Like that's just true. And I tell people this and people are like, they can't believe it because they've never been told this. This has never been shown to them. And of course they assume that if you live under anything that reeks of authoritarianism of some, of any kind that there's no quality of life. And I'm not here to argue for authoritarianism by any means, right. but just like what Bernie Sanders did, he was trying to speak in a very nuanced way about like, look, this is just the way it is. How can we not like look at that and, and maybe try to embody some of that in our own politics? Um, yeah, you know, so, simple thing just to, to just yeah. to add a data point to that. Look, you know, anybody, any of your listeners who wants to go to the United Nations Development Program website, UNDP, they have very good statistics on um, standard of living in all countries around the world. You know, and rather than comparing Cuba, for instance, to the United States or to France, like compare Cuba to other countries in the Caribbean or Latin America. Yeah. And, and look at the standard of living in Cuba compared to, let's say, the Dominican Republic, which is right next door. Right. right. Or a country like uh, Guatemala or Nicaragua. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. there are, again, social scientists do things that are valuable. They collect data that is unbiased in the sense that they're just trying to get numbers of like daily caloric intake, levels of education, levels of literacy, some kind of objective measure of women's rights, whatever. It turns out, again, based on pretty neutral data, that Cuba doesn't do as badly as people in the United States think it does, mm-hmm. right? So it's yeah. it, it's exactly the point that you're making, which is yeah. it becomes very difficult, right, to to have a conversation about this because suddenly you become an apologist for authoritarianism. If you try to point out that, Hey, you know, the Cuban medical system works really well. And almost the entire continent of Latin America is staffed by Cuban doctors, right? Who are trained in Cuba and they, they work all throughout the, the Spanish speaking world. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, I think it was when uh, Jair Bolsonaro was elected in Brazil in 2018. Um, the previous administration, which was a center-left um, political party under was uh, Lula da Silva and then uh, Dilma Rousseff. And I think it was under Rousseff that she brought in Cuban doctors to various very rural areas that just didn't have enough doctors because she was like, hey, like Brazilian doctors, if you want to do it, great. And most of them didn't. So they just said, all right, let's bring in some Cuban doctors. And you know, the standard of living improved in those regions. And then when Bolsonaro got in for purely ideological reasons, because he's a far right president, he said, get out. And so 
this is just the the curse of anti-communism. Like I feel like it's this extremely toxic and persistent thing and it's like everywhere. Like I feel it everywhere. It's in the it's in the political discourse and even people who are sympathetic to say a Bernie Sanders who is not radical by any stretch of the imagination. Exactly. <laughs> they they still have this and I think it's it's pervasive because it's in our uh you know public education system, it's in the media, it's um it's it's just common political discourse and and I just get so it's it's really disheartening because there's just so there vast well-oiled moneyed interests that their whole point is to disrupt the political conversation in order to bring up the horrors of communism of stalinism you know i've seen over and over again marx marx not stalin karl marx is directly responsible for the deaths of 100 million people yeah and it's like it's it's a it's a meme it's become something so pervasive that there's not there's no data backing that up. Whatever data there is, it's not very well done, not very well put together. I just, I don't know. I, I don't even know what to do anymore. I, I do my thing and I feel like I'm preaching to the choir with this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of leftists were in this position. Like, how do we get more people on our side? And I think the pandemic with the economic fallout has helped move people in that direction because the cracks have widened more more people are struggling. But unfortunately, at the same time, people are also moving towards the right. And mm-hmm. I think we saw that with the last president, with Donald Trump, the culmination of what happened on January 6th was like a really yeah. potent example of like where that was all leading. So anyway, my, my question to you is I'm sure being a uh, professor and doing all the work you've done, you've probably, I imagine you have students that maybe ask and bring up all of these talking points probably over and over and over again. They probably haven't changed that much over the years. What are your common questions or, or assertions that are made by people you speak with about these things? Um, and what would be maybe some responses that you would have to to some of those assertions as well? Yeah, so I wrote, I co-authored an article back in 2018, I think, called Anti, Anti-Communism. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the online uh, sort of a ph- philosophical journal called Eon. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what we, my colleague and I, who's a philosopher, we really try to sort of look at the root of some of these anti-communist arguments and why it is that they they sort of lack an intermediate premise. So they, they say things like a bunch of people died because communism and so therefore communism bad, <laughs> Right. And and that, you know, that's sort of the level of the argument that you pretty much get in public debates. Right. And so you have to kind of push back a little bit about that. Right. There's an intermediate premise in that argument, which is if a particular system's political economic ideology causes bad things to happen, like people dying, therefore you should not have a political system based on that ideology. That's sort of the, there, that's the sort of intermediate premise that you need. Right. So, um, and this is, this is one of those things where the minute you say that explicitly, you realize that the very same arguments that are made against communism could easily be made against capitalism. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So if, you know, a capitalist economic system actually encourages things like slavery or genocide, right, or war, well, maybe you shouldn't have an economic system based on that ideology because Mm -hmm. a lot of people die. 
I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned um, the Jakarta Method, uh, the book, right? And the, the kind yeah. of, um, you know, and we could get into the history of the CIA and sort of covert operations abroad and all of the things that the United States did in order to support freedom and democracy in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, justifying a lot of rather dubious um, practices, you know, in the name of anti-communism. And so, in a very similar way that the anti that, that communists justified lots of really horrible things in the name of anti-capitalism, right? So, I mean, this this is a double-edged sword. And I think that, look, people who are actually willing to engage with you, if you sit them down and you kind of walk them through the argument, really very few political ideologies come out looking perfect, right? They, sure. they all have problems associated with them. So then you get to this comparative thing, like, you know, Winston Churchill saying democracy is the worst form of government, except for all others that have been tried. This is a very common line, right? So how do you resist that? Again, I think the key thing is to go to the data, to show that people who have, you know, universal health care, for instance, do not live in a totalitarian hellscape of a gulag, right? (laughs) And it is actually pretty nice. The NHS, which is the most extreme form of a national health service where all of the government, uh, the the government, you know, runs all the hospitals and all the doctors are state employees and everything like that. We don't think of the UK as sort of, you know, some kind of weird communist nightmare. Um, It actually works pretty well. It turns out that the NHS, you know, is a pretty beloved institution in the, in the UK. Um, yeah, again, things like housing, uh, housing rights and um, certain kinds of social protections for workers, more workers say in the running of, of corporations, there are all sorts of steps that you can take on the way to making the economy as democratic as we believe our polity is. And yeah, if you mention them, banking regulation, or again, you know, job guarantees, or any sort of government intervention in the economy, people are going to scream socialism, communism, socialism, communism, gulags, famine, Stalin, ah, um, it's almost like lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? Yeah. It becomes this kind of uh, hysterical narrative so that people like Obama gets called a socialist or Biden, you yeah. know, is like the Trojan horse for, you know, Victor, uh, what's his name? Uh, Chavez. Um, oh. Hugo, Hugo Chavez. Hugo right? Chavez, yeah. Um, you know, who's been, you know, I mean, just, just, just the craziness that you hear on the on the on the right about like the hysteria around socialism so that the council of economic advisors under um the former president actually you know put out a report from the white house called the economic costs of socialism where they compare the price of a price of an extra large ford pickup truck in sweden versus the united states as evidence that you know somehow swedish socialism is completely going to limit our liberties to have this extra large pickup truck or whatever. I don't even know how they even <laughs> imagine that relevant piece of data. But all I'm saying is that they will try to hit you with statistics. They will try to hit you with numbers. I mean, the 100 million number, for instance, is a number that I talk a lot about. It comes out of a particular book that was published at a particular time uh, that has been contested including by people who contributed to that book almost immediately after it was published. So so the fact that this number gets circulated, if you even, again, you take 10 minutes to go and actually read the original article and the original debates around it. And this book, the black book of communism, um, you'll see that it, it is, it is in of itself a kind of fabrication of somebody who really wanted to get to that number and was willing to kind of fudge around the corners. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but again, why quibble about numbers? I think the key thing here is that capitalism has a lot of blood on its hands as well. And, um, and we are not necessarily talking about the, um, the relative abstract benefits of one system over the other. We're actually talking about how we're going to move forward in the face of real concrete problems like climate change, where the negative externalities of capitalist markets have done really severe damage to the planet. We need a different political and economic system that's going to address that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this isn't just pie in the sky anymore, right? This isn't just some theoretical debate, ideological debate of the Cold War. This is actually like a pressing question. How can we fix a system that is creating all of these negative externalities, again, not only for the environment, but in all sorts of other aspects of our lives. And I think that we need, you know, smart, thoughtful people who I, who I often, um, I speak to people who I think of as like people in the center, sort of the apathetic center, right? Mm-hmm. And people who are not committed to the extremes. Because um, I, I also f- often get frustrated when I feel like I'm just preaching to the choir. Um, when right. I teach, I try to be as neutral as possible, obviously. Um, but when, in my in my own life and in my own work, I feel like there's a place for us to reach out deeper into this sort of apathetic center. And as you said, I think the pandemic has opened up opportunities. But it's also, it's not about being dogmatic, it's not about asking people to just sort of buy a certain kind of ideology, lock, stock, and barrel, or hook, line, and sinker, whatever your metaphor, <laughs> preferred metaphor is. It's <laughs> about actually explaining to people concepts that are really useful in their daily lives that help them understand how to live. So I'll give you a very concrete example. I, I hate Marxist, you know, using Marxist jargon, but... There's this concept of use value versus exchange value, right? Mm-hmm. So, so a, an an item has use, right? Like my cup, it's a very useful cup because it holds my coffee, and like a good cup will hold my coffee and you know hopefully keep it warm for a little while. Sure. Um, and it's got a handle so that when the coffee is hot, um, I don't burn my hand, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. useful, right? But, um. It has a use value, but the minute it goes on to the market, it has an exchange value, right? Like the, the, the actual value of this thing is going to be dependent on what somebody is willing to pay for it. So if it's like a, a fancy cup made by somebody important, or if it's got a brand logo on it or whatever, if there's something about it, I can, I could extract a profit that the difference between the exchange value and the use value is often where this sort of profit comes from. I think a lot of young people forget that they have use value that's independent of their exchange value. Like you're a human being, you're fully developed. You live in the world. Like my dog doesn't like worry about doing something with her life. She just lives it, right? We are constantly worrying because of the system that we live in about our exchange value, about how we can commodify ourselves. And we often forget that independent of our exchange value, independent of how many people retweet our tweets or like our Facebook posts or Instagram posts or whatever it is, TikToks or things, I don't know, um, that, that we, that like just by being in the world, we are 
we are whole, we are useful. And, you know, and so when I talk to, you know, when I talk to students and I try to under explain how these concepts operate, right? It's not like I'm trying to convert them to some sort of like wild-eyed Marxism, but I do think that sometimes the language of understanding social theory can be really powerful, especially for people who haven't been exposed to it before. And it gives you a kind of way to have a conversation with people who are in the center and who are, who are, who feel very confused about what's going on in the world. And they're looking for answers. You know, they often turn, unfortunately, to the internet. And then there are these rabbit holes that take you either down to the far right or sometimes the far left. But th if there are ways that like your podcast, um, the kind of work that many of my colleagues are doing, um, the, the, if there's a way to sort of try to chip into that middle by sort of making these concepts and these arguments and these theories more accessible to people, I think we can make a difference. I really do. It takes a lot of work. It can be very frustrating and exhausting, but I do think in the end, it can really make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I think in doing my work, I've definitely encountered people that are doing that you know, they're presenting these ideas in a way that's a really approachable and that really does like chip away at some of those preconceived ideas or just the thick ideology that seems to pervade everything, you know? Um, and people now I think are, are, it's, it's interesting. I feel a polarity right now. I feel like people are kind of being pulled where all of those, uh, those preconceived notions they have are, are hardening but there's also openings that are occurring as well. So it's a time of extremes. And I think when we have these massive crises, like we're in the middle of with climate disruption, as well as the pandemic and just capitalism being capitalism, there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think we maybe have to be a little discerning on where to invest our invest. There's that word again, where to put our energies, you know, in our, <laughs> to put our, our efforts, you know, and, and know like how because burnout's very real and oh, that's yeah. a huge thing especially i feel like being a leftist of any sort in this time and in this place is like just oh yeah rough. sometimes it's you, rough you know, like, i protested the first iraq war in in 1991 <laughs> you know like i i feel like i've been it's it's exhausting no mm -hmm. and and i think that we also need to be attentive to our comrades and colleagues and the the kind of real efforts that people are doing to to kind of spread the word and trying to help change create create a, a better future for everybody on this planet and and more just and equitable and sustainable future right so so there's also a kind of you know we we have to make strategic choices there's no mm -hmm. doubt about that like you know I can't fix every single thing that I know is out there wrong. I, I'm hoping that I have colleagues out there who are working on the other bits that I think are as important as well. You know, I feel like in my work and in my life, I have, you know, a particular set of concerns that I feel like I'm most qualified to mm -hmm. move the debate on. And it, But I also think it's really important for us to reach out to each other and support each other's work as much as we can. Because the, the burnout, as you said, the burnout is real. People can be can be so consumed by activism and um, and so that they lose the ability to really, you know, sustain that in the long run. And if there's one thing that I can say 
in my experience, this is a marathon, not a sprint, yeah. <laughs> right? You yeah. know, hopefully you'll be doing something like this in 20 years when you're 52 and you'll still be, you know, having these conversations and thinking about these issues and, you know, Hopefully the world will be better for it. Um, it might not be. It might be worse. That's horrifying to realize that things yeah. can actually go backwards, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but when I, but one of the things that I, 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 where I find hope, I will say, is um, when I read the biographies of of people from the late 19th or the early 20th century. Particularly, I'm interested in a specific group of women in Eastern Europe. And the struggles and the challenges that they faced and the contradictions that they that they, you know, had to overcome and their own certain kinds of privilege and blindsight, you know, blindside. Um, they're blinded to certain things that, you know, <laughs> decisions that maybe were wrong or, or, or they were insensitive to the suffering of certain groups or whatever. Right. In the long run, those who sort of stayed the most committed, despite all of the challenges and the contradictions and the very real burnout I think there are lots of examples of people who really did make a difference. And you only see that after the fact. Yeah. While you're in it, it's really, really hard to sort of take heart and, and persevere. But it's really important that people understand that in the long run, this kind of work is really valuable. At least I think yeah. it is. <laughs> I hope it yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. And I'll just say this is multi-generational. You know, the struggle goes on. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it'd be so nice if we had a amazing, beautiful revolution right now and everything just kind of clicked on and, you know, just everything was just better. That would be great. But we know that that's not how history has ever no. worked. You know? It's always flips and starts, right? Yeah. Always it's sort of like chugging forward slowly and then we go back and then we chug forward and we go back. And, you know, but there, but there are, as you said, with the pandemic, I think there are these more plastic moments, right, where suddenly history becomes a much more um, malleable thing, right? Like, think about it, you know, a, over a year ago, the idea of UBI, like people like Andrew Yang or whatever, talking about universal basic income and the idea of the government just giving people money. And, and there were all sorts of people going, you can't do that. That's just, that won't work. Yeah. And then guess what? They did it. Because <laughs> right? yeah. took the steel off of that. So obviously you can do it because they did it. It wasn't that hard, right? Yeah. Now, the longer term fiscal implications and, you know, that we can all debate about all this and whether or not UBI is a good idea, you know, whether we need a jobs guarantee or some kind of more radical forms of redistribution or workers control of the, um, you know, corporations or the algorithms or whatever. There are all sorts of wonderful debates right now about how we move forward. Do we want workers control of the corporations? Do you know, we're talking about fully automated luxury communism. There's so <laughs> many things, right? Sure. Or alternative hedonisms where we're all living in a much reduced level mm -hmm. of consumptions, you know, I think, I think, you know, these are debates that the left is going to have, you know, ad infinitum, because that's what often happens. But nevertheless, I think the conversation, just having this conversation, people who listen to your podcast, people who maybe read my books or listen to my podcast about Alexander Kolontai, they're going to be aware of certain sets of debates and ideas which aren't really being covered as much in the mainstream media. And I do think that the more minds we open, the, the, the more rich and potentially pliable the public debate becomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to, I think, end this interview, this discussion on that note, I think, because... 
we have to take advantage of the time we're in and do what we can and understand that we can't do everything by ourselves. And that's all I can, that's all I can do. That's all anyone can do. And, um, and, and we can you're... be kind to each other, right? Yeah, absolutely. We can be kind to each other. That's, you know, I think that people underestimate the power of that kind of kindness, right? It's yeah. really transformative. You mm-hmm. ask somebody, you know, like, hey, how you doing? I'm here. Go ahead and vent. I'll listen. You know, we yeah. can support each other in really powerful ways. And we, we underestimate how, you know, the s- simple acts of kindness simple acts of solidarity, they resonate down, you know, down generations. I I was recently reading a a piece uh, that Alexander Kollontai wrote about Lenin, and it was about, it was a Christmas, and he borrowed some money from her because he was going to Finland and he didn't have any Finnish currency, and she basically gave him some money that she had, like, in her pocket or whatever. And this whole little essay was about how despite everything that he had going on in the midst of the revolution, he remembered to pay her back. And Mm -hmm. he wrote her a little personal note, just thanking her for, for lending him the money when he needed it right on the train and on his way into Finland. And she reflects on like the title of the essay is Lenin thought of great and small, right? That the fact that he, he took a moment out of, his day, <laughs> probably a really crazy period of time, right? In Russian yeah. history, history, to to just write a note to say, hey, you know, thanks for thanks for giving me a couple of bucks, basically, to yeah. buy food or whatever on the train. Right. I think, you know, and the fact that she remembers that so many years later, in in the midst of everything else that he did, was that he wrote her a note to say thanks. I think, you know, again, we really underestimate the power and value of those little tiny acts of kindness. And we should really think about, you know, sharing kindness with others when we can. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of those examples of this, these acts of just the way that we can treat each other that do not fit or do not, cannot be commodified really. I mean, they can try, they, they certainly do certain things to try to do that, but you you can't, you know, it's, it's about as human as it gets. So what are you going to do with that? <laughs> um, yeah, Kristen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated this discussion. And I just, I do want to ask just a couple of things before you go. You mentioned, of, of course, there's your book, um, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. That was published at least two years ago. Yeah, 2018. It, it 2018. came out in paperback in um, March 2020, right before the pandemic. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so there's that book. You also mentioned this new book you're working on. Is that do you coming out? Taking stock of shock with Oxford University Press. It's very specifically about the social consequences of the economic transition from communism to capitalism in Eastern Europe. That's um, July 2021. Okay, so that's coming out relatively soon. Awesome. Um, You have a podcast. You mentioned is it called AK47? All the AK47. So it's 47 selections from the works of Alexander Kolontai, who was the kind of a Bolshevik uh, women's activist and the first commissar of social welfare in the Soviet Union, who was a really important theorist of women's rights and women's emancipation and sexual emancipation as well. Wow. So I, it's a very nerdy thing. I kind of read her <laughs> works and I discuss them, you know, so we go to the original texts. I mean, obviously in English, but they, yeah. but I read the originals and then we kind of have a conversation about 
how we can apply some of these works, many of which were written in the late 19th or the early 20th century to the situation that we face today in, in the 21st century. Wow. Okay. Well, that's great. I love the name and it's, uh, it works. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> um, and then there's your website, uh, kristengodsey.com. I'll be putting all the links in the description to all this. And I do look forward to your new book coming out and congratulations about getting that published and everything. Thank you. And thanks so much for inviting me. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk. <laughs>